Hello everybody and welcome to Stories vs Stigma, a candid podcast where I have conversations with guests about all things mental health and other taboo topics. I'm your host, Tash Binney, a medical student at King's College London and a part-time content creator on social media. In this episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with Harriet, who is also known as Not Another Awareness Account on Instagram. Harriet speaks about so many different important topics during this episode. We cover everything from Harriet being initially rejected from medical school and how that affected her mental health, to her experience of an eating disorder, and her experience of fitness to practice whilst at medical school. We do speak about some emotionally upsetting and distressing topics during this episode, such as self-harm, having suicidal thoughts, attempted suicides, traumatic bereavement and grief. We also spend time talking about attitudes amongst medical students about mental health and what the life of a doctor involves and how that can impact mental health as well as speaking about a physical health condition and how that can affect people's mental health. So I really hope you learn something during this episode and please do refer down to the show notes if you would like places to find support on the topics mentioned in today's episode. So without further ado, grab your cup of tea or your cup of coffee, grab your earphones, head out for a walk or Find yourself a comfy spot at home and enjoy episode seven of Stories vs. Stigma. Hi Harriet, thank you so much for joining Stories vs. Stigma. Are you able to just briefly introduce yourself um, and briefly share your story facing a stigmatized topic yeah so I'm Harriet I'm 27 um I graduated medical school a year ago um and I've kind of lived with quite significant mental illness for the past goodness knows how many years um the last particular few years have been really really challenging so mainly um it's been like quite severe depression I've um, been admitted to hospital a couple of times um, but a lot of the times sort of managed in the community um, and um, then more recently there's been kind of some other other kind of new experiences that I haven't had before things that are a bit different um, and quite scary and difficult to come to terms with um, kind of I'm still sort of processing all of that it's still quite raw so I'm kind of that sort of thing I'm not necessarily comfortable sharing at the moment so yeah it's kind of a bit about me (laughs) perfect um and that's absolutely fine um it's just great to be able to share just um anything really I think um so obviously you're a doctor which is amazing um (laughs) how was medical school um with maybe your mental health um did you start sort of suffering from a mental illness beforehand um was it during med school could you yeah yeah, tell us how you found med school yeah so initially so I first kind of my sort of mental health journey for one of a better term I hate that term (laughs) but I first started struggling when I was about 14 mainly like low mood depression um and um and I, I was sort of content warning I was struggling a lot with self-harm at the time um my school wasn't very supportive um but you know I had a little bit of counselling from a GP and kind of sort of everything sort of not evened out but it sort of became more stable um and then when I was 16 my mum was diagnosed with breast cancer (laughs) quite uh, unexpectedly like she went she found um, everyone was like oh it's probably a cyst had some tests anyway turned out it was stage three breast cancer so like and at the same time I started a new school again the school wasn't very supportive um so it was really really challenging and then my second year of sixth form so when I was about 17 I started really struggling with food um and kind of developed anorexia um and it was, it was kind of an interesting situation because I'd been very overweight, sort of borderline obese in terms of BMI. So although I lost quite a lot of weight, 
sort of initially everyone was praising me everyone was saying oh my god you look amazing you've done so well but not really realizing the behaviors I was using to get to that point and then it kind of it became more serious when I sort of I think the, the thing that I started to worry was like when my period stopped I was like oh you know that because it's quite a big thing and and it was then that I remember I did like one of the questionnaires and it was came out as like high um high suspicion of eating disorder and I was like it was quite a shock to me um so then I and it was around here that the whole like medical school journey started so I had was told in my first or second week at the new school at my sixth form by a biology teacher and I remember this so clearly don't bother applying for medicine you won't get in even our bright students really struggle and you'll just be disappointed um <laughs> what? and my chemistry teacher. teachers oh, yeah my, my chemistry <laughs> teachers were very similar my psychology teacher was great she was like cool that's great let's do some psychology <laughs> <laughs> so it was yeah my second year of sixth form that was kind of anorexia as, as it was mm. you know really took hold and um it did put strain on like my relationship with my mum um but then I was trying to apply for med school and again school was very unsupportive um and I'd done my UK cap but there was classic Harriet scatty mess I'd messed up all the timings and I arrived late and so I came up with a, like a low score so then I was really limited where I could apply and we'd spoken to my teachers and they were like oh well we're not sure we can predict you three A's and I was just like luckily from like pressure from my parents they were like no you're going to predict her three A's and then so application comes out everyone else at my school is like getting all these offers and interviews and I'm like I still haven't heard anything and in the end I got four straight rejections um and you know it wasn't I was just like wondering why and so I rang up a couple of the unis and they were like well your predicted grades weren't you know didn't meet the standard I was like what what do you mean and they were like yeah you were predicted two A's and a B so my school had effectively lied <laughs> and said they'd predict me three A's and so that was a bit of a shock so I decided to take a gap year um and uh, this was I decided okay maybe I don't want to be a doctor I you know you know maybe you know they think I'm not good enough so maybe I don't want to be a doctor so that goes I got a job started working anorexia still doing its thing in the background <laughs> things all started getting worse um and then I applied to do um a ski instructor training course in Canada went to Canada had an amazing time actually was in a really good place eating disorder wise and then came back <laughs> relapsed <laughs> and um I ended up doing my retakes and about it was less than a week before results day I emailed every single medical school in the country like everywhere and said look I had a really rough time through sixth form my mum was ill my school was really so unsupportive. I really want to be a doctor. I really want to go to medical school. Like if you've got any clearing places available, please, can you give me an interview? And one medical school got back to me and said, if you get your grades, come for an interview. So then this was like 48 hours before results day. And I was like, oh God, what if I don't get them? And I did. I scraped my chemistry by two UMS. And I was like, it's still an A. That's all you need. Exactly. That's all you need. So I am. Um, went for the interview and um like a week later I got a phone call saying oh yes yeah, so we'd like to offer you an unconditional offer for next year we don't have enough spaces for you this year um but you're our second reserve and we'll give you a call next week to move to go either way so fast forward a week and I was in an appointment with my CPN at the time from the eating disorder service and she was like we were actually discussing did I need more intensive treatment um because I things were just continuing to go downhill. And they said like, you know, if things continue this way, you're gonna be in a really bad way. So, um, and so my mobile phone rings and I've ignored it because they want to be rude. Then the landline rings and my dad picked it up and said, oh, interrupted and was like, oh, Harriet, it's, it's medical school. And they were like, yeah, we want to offer you a place for this year. 
so I was literally like amazing but then it was like my my CPM was like okay so I'm really proud of you it's amazing but we don't think you should go and I was like so it was like here this like two throw two throw two throw do I go don't I go and then as you say we have all these like those checks that you have to um fill out um so I did that for occupational health and I got a call saying look you know you've got this history of self-harm depression anorexia we need to see in person so did (laughs) I went down and the this same doctor was who I ended up seeing throughout medical school really great really great guy um he got to know me really well and um so it was amazing throughout um and he said look normally like ideally we probably would say you need to defer another year but you're trying really hard you know if we keep you under like close eye and you're doing all the right things it should be okay so I went I started (laughs) um first year was mostly okay um I started to really struggle with anxiety around about kind of halfway through to the I'd been anxious before but this was like on a whole nother level um and then I started struggling with self-harm again and it was pre-clin so it wasn't ideal but it wasn't complete disaster um and then so I got through first year fine second year like my mood started to go downhill again so I was you know on medication but the first the first one was on really help with the anxiety and then my mood was going downhill I started to struggle a lot more with self-harm again and it was becoming you know started having like suicidal thoughts um but it wasn't really interfering with my studies you know I was doing a lot I was doing a lot of sports I was doing you know involved in societies and peer teaching and mentoring and widening access so I was still doing a lot and so then the the challenge was that it was the medication was really interfering with my sleep so that was like a a side effect it was really hard because then low sleep doesn't really contribute very well to your mood third year now this is where things start to get more difficult I struggled not with placement exactly but the lack of structure you know first and second year very structured timetable knew exactly what you're doing when but then, you know, apart from our academic day, the rest of the time was really unstructured and I found it really difficult. I was seeing my GP really regularly. I was seeing occupational health really regularly. I had a, an amazing pastoral tutor who I was seeing really regularly. And they could all say that, see that things were going downhill. And, but I was clinging on to medicine. I was like, this is my life. This is what I want to do. It's going to be the only thing that makes me happy. Um, and they were like, my, this pastoral tutor was like, we, I really think you need to interrupt. Like, and I was dead set against it. So after Christmas, things started ramping up even more. And then it was at the beginning of February. I, we'd literally had our halfway ball two days, before, 48 hours before. And I got uh, someone from the office said to me, you've got a meeting with the dean at what sometime in the afternoon and I was like oh but I mean clinical skills then and they're like this meeting takes precedence over everything so a bit unnerved but you know went off the clinical skills and the pastoral tutor as I because I said you know I have to leave early and as I came out she was waiting she said I'm going to be in this meeting with you and I was like you know I have a meeting what's going on went in and there was uh so it was me pastoral tutor dean for health and well-being the the sort of admin lady for health and well-being someone to take notes and then the head of administration for the whole medical school so me plus five other people and they literally handed me this letter saying you are we're suspending you on pending investigation on fitness practice grounds um because you don't have the insight to know the impact on your peers and your providers um and this was kind of a complete sort of where the hell has this come from? I've been doing all the right things. I've been going to my appointments. I've been seeing my GP. I was having therapy, literally, you know, all the things they tell you to do. I was doing all of them. Mm. So I couldn't really understand why 
I had an appointment with my occupational health doctor and I explained everything. He said, I don't think it will, they'll do the investigation. I don't think it will, you know, they'll find anything because you've been doing all the right things and I don't think it would, will go to panel. They did an investigation and it went to a panel <laughs> and they decided that I needed to suspend the rest of the year. So again, things went initially were fine and then kind of went a bit pear-shaped and I ended up making a couple of attempts because it was almost like well I don't have medicine anymore what is there to my life and you know I got really hopeless about it all and you know am I ever going to get better and so they reviewed it and they they ended up saying actually hey like you know we'll keep a really close eye on you but you can restart third year so then third year, second, like second round of third year happened and I got through it okay, kind of had a relapse with anorexia again, but, you know, got through it all. Then fourth year starts and I, again, had a bit of a rough time, but more physically. So, oh yeah, my second and third year also, like my asthma just went from being non-existent to being terrible, like life-threatening attacks, being admitted to hospital for that. Oh that was like another spanner in the works. And so that was, and it was really hard to control. So that was a challenge. And then fourth year starts and I ended up having to take off time because I had glandular fever and a really bad chest infection. So I ended up taking about six weeks off because of that. And then they were called into question, have you missed too much? And I was like, I am not missing any more time. And so I got got to the end of I got to Christmas and I was on my on my knees I was exhausted um because glandular fever takes it out of you and um I was like okay one more week and then I was in a shop doing some Christmas shopping got a call from my mum saying dad's in recess with a suspected bleed on the brain you need to come now gosh and so as a medic you like bleed on the brain that could be anything from like a simple small bleed that's not really going to affect him to catastrophic hemorrhage mm. I think I knew it was more the bad side of things because mm. otherwise she wouldn't have said come now he was in the neuro ICU um because they have to do all the brainstem testing and stuff and it was like it was really weird because I kind of had to you know the rest of the family was like they know nothing about it and it was like I know a lot I knew a lot about it and the doctors were really good we kind of put him forward for organ donation turns out he was already on the register um and the donor nurses were great and they're really great with me as well because they knew that I kind of wanted more information so I could understand and process mm. it so they let me watch like the brainstem testing which I actually found really helpful because I could see I knew what they were looking for and I could see that there was no response so that kind of helped me process that actually no he is gone he there is nothing that can be done to bring mm. him back and then I remember, because this was a weekend, and I remember I had to call the office saying that, oh, I'm not going to be in placement. And I remember it was like eight o'clock and said, oh, can I speak to this person or this person? They're like, well, they're not in yet. And I was like, so I was just literally like to this receptionist. I was like, um, oh, my dad's died. And both of us were a bit like, oh, okay. And I was like, so I'm not going to be in. <laughs> and she was like, okay. And then the med school were great about it all pastoral tutor was amazing like because I I'd emailed to her tell her and she was like she gave me her mobile number she said look mm. call me or text me anything you need mm. and then went back after Christmas and I didn't you know the last time I'd been in, in a hospital was when with that and so I was like mm. how am I gonna be how am I gonna feel so mm. I went in my placement partners knew and they just assumed I wasn't gonna be there turned out I got the complete wrong time um I had meant to be in an hour early so I was like sat in the cafe saying oh where are you guys and they're like we started an hour ago we just assumed you weren't going to be there mm. and I remember just walking around the hospital and my brain was like nope so I left I went to see my pastoral tutor and she was like do you need extra time and I was like I don't know and I was like okay maybe a week she went to speak to the office she's like you've got two weeks off I was like really and she's like yes you need it mm. and then <laughs> some of my next placements included I see you gosh palliative care mm, no. and you know so there was a lot of 
stuff on bereavement, a lot of stuff on end of life care. And it was all in a palliative sense. And, you know, mm. there was nothing about traumatic bereavement, nothing about traumatic grief. And so mm. I ended up walking out a lot of the teaching because it was just too much. It was too close to home and too, it was like, obviously it was in connection with palliative care. So I can understand why they did it from that point mm. of view. And but but at the same time it's like well why haven't you thought about this in terms of like other teaching like when it, a lot of the mental health teaching the way it was done and often like the attitudes of other med students meant that it was really difficult and again I had to walk out of a lot of things because it was just too much and there was a sense of invalidation a lot of shame and a lot of anger as well because it was like they're asking questions it's like you do not know what it's like mm. and like I remember that it was talking about like management of overdoses and tox- toxicology and all of that and mm. someone said well if they want to die why don't you just let them die oh my gosh I'm gonna interrupt you there um but oh, thank you so much for sharing all of that um yeah I'm so sorry about your dad that's it's just utter crap is the only way to put it um and just so much and the fact that you're able to be so open and honest about it is just a real credit to you um yeah so thank you so much um if we just go back to I mean it's the same as like what you were saying it's funny I've spoken to well, it's not funny it's horrible but I've spoken to a few med students and I've had a similar experience with so I've spoken to med students who have or doctors who have suffered from a mental illness um and sort of yeah that opinion from other medical students who maybe haven't suffered yet um haven't had a close friend or family suffer from mental illness and it's just it's very immature and it's very ignorant um and yeah I had similar similar things being said what did I hear I heard um but, but why are they trying to take their life like it's so selfish it's it's why are they doing that it doesn't make sense they're so young um what else did I have oh no one ever gets better from mental illnesses no they don't get better what's the point of like spending money on mental health and I just it's it's you know the stats of medical students who have a mental illness I, I can't remember what it is but it's quite high right yeah it is why doesn't on. yeah so why doesn't you know, if you're sat in a room of 20 people, you know, somebody, at least one person in there is going to be suffering. Mm. Um, and that needs to be spoken about. And, you know, these people need mm. to be educated because how can they be good doctors unless with this like judgmental attitude? Yeah. So I have a lot of frustration towards that. So I, yeah. I really relate. But also what I found interesting was when you were speaking about um your eating disorder you said that you were um you know you were a bit overweight um beforehand and I think that's really important to cover I think there's the stereotype of you know um anorexia only affects white girls which we both are (laughs) but it um and skinny um and I don't know there's all these horrible stereotypes Mm -hmm. and I think I actually didn't realize very ignorantly that actually no it it, eating disorder isn't in the weight it's in the kind of thought processes yeah. yeah the cognition um and I think it can get really dangerous because obviously an anorexia nervosa I think is the most um dangerous mental health illness in terms of mortality rate mortality rate yeah one in five which is awful awful and obviously you know hospitalization is there to kind of stop that I guess um but then we actually lose you know we kind of think oh the people that aren't like severely underweight you know they're not that ill yeah which can be really problematic I think I don't know what you think about that yeah interestingly if you look at um criteria for I think it's the marzipan guidelines which are also like King's and the Maudsley Mm-hmm. And I actually met a lot, even though the time when I was healthy weight, mm. met most of those criteria. But because I was either only just underweight or 
you know, but had I been a healthy weight to start with, the extent of my weight loss, they would have been far, far more concerned. But because mm. I'd gone from overweight mm. to borderline, they were like, you know, I remember seeing the first time I saw the GP about my periods. And she was like, this is a GP who'd like known me all my life, you know, since practically since I was in the womb. And she was like, you've lost a lot of weight, haven't you? And I was like, mm-hmm. oh, yes. <laughs> and she was like, well, don't lose any more. And I did. And um, it's, yeah, it brings up a lot of, I also have this condition, I don't know if you've heard of it, called lipedema. Have you heard of it at all? No. Oh, I get to do a bit of education. I love doing this. <laughs> Educate me. About, it's a, so it's a fat storage disorder, which okay. is suspected to affect up to 10 to 11% of women, which considering most people haven't heard of it, is quite shocking. And basically what it is, is it predominantly affects uh, females or people assigned female at birth. Um, and it is excessive weight gain, usually in the lower limbs. There are different types that can affect the upper limbs. It has a hereditary pattern. Um, and this, so you build up really large amounts of fat on the leg, so from between the hips and ankles, but it's sparing of the feet. So people will have sort of normal feet, so there's a sort of braceleting effect on the ankle so you could probably think that you've seen those sorts of people that body shape and often people are very slim on the top and um this fat is resistant to diet and exercise so there are pictures of people who are emaciated on their top half but their bottom half is huge so it is and so the only way it can be treated is surgically through a very specific form of a liposuction and that is not available on the NHS. So mm. I was recently involved in a project because they're trying to change the nice guidelines about it. Um, you know, so a lot of people like rates within this population, rates of eating disorders are really high. So either restrictive and orthorexic eating disorders because they're trying to lose as much weight and they can't or binge eating disorders because you know um people again it's a coping mechanism and people think well losing weight isn't helping anyway and again it's a coping mechanism and reactive and i i don't know so much about binge eating disorder um so and then because it's untreatable like it gets to the extent where like so my granny for example she had it my mum has it she when she died her upper body was tiny but her legs were so huge that she couldn't fit in a normal coffin so and the you know I know of a woman who I met via Instagram she was deemed so overweight that she had gastric bypass surgery and it did nothing and as a result she gets malabsorption she has like severe vitamin deficiencies and people because people just assume you're overweight so pair that with an eating disorder and, and it's progressive. So, you know, you'll start, you know, I've actually been looking back at pictures recently because June is Lipedema Awareness Month. Uh, I've been trying to do some more awareness stuff about it. And actually it's really challenging because looking back at how my body has changed and knowing that's completely out of my control, regardless mm. of what I do with exercise, with diet, that won't mm. change. So I'm lucky that I was very early stage when I was diagnosed, mainly because my mum <laughs> had it. And so I have had some surgery I did have to pay for it. I'm very fortunate and very privileged that I had been given some money by my grandfather. Um, and But still looking back at pictures, it really brings at home how much my body has changed because like actually mm. my top half is a small size, but my bottom half is disproportionate. And mm. so seeing how it's pro- progressed is really hard and knowing that the only way I can change it is through surgery. And it's, it's liposuction which everyone thinks you know you just suck it out actually it's brutal it's really mm. brutal um so that is kind of a a difficult yeah, I can, point I can completely see how that sort of you know physical health just shows the physical health and mental health overlap yeah. um yeah I can really see how that just 
yeah so uncontrollable and I can I mean I'm so shocked to hear that it affects over 10 percent um of women um yeah that's crazy I I had a similar thing so um when I my period stopped um well a similar thing in the sense that a physical health condition Mm. so I got told that perhaps it's polycystic ovarian syndrome and my mum has it so it was like okay yeah it probably is we're not going to do like the full-on diagnosis and like ultrasound or whatever now you're you're young it doesn't really matter but make sure that your weight is always you have a tendency that people with polycystic ovarian syndrome have a tendency to put on more weight um and if you want to get pregnant in the future um make sure that you're you know you're controlling your weight and it's in a healthy range Mm. so that was like me at 16 and of course like I didn't want children there but I um I did and I think I still do want children eventually um so I was like oh gosh for future Tash I need to make sure that I'm being really fit and controlling what I'm eating so yeah I just found that interesting just that yeah that physical health and the form of controlling the the eating disorder yeah and I think that the the bit with lipidemia that I struggle with is no one knows about it hardly anyone knows I was in a clinic with a very well-renowned professor and he was like what you know why might people gain weight and and people were like oh well Cushing's I was like but but what causes them and they were like Cushing's you know you've got high high cortisol that increases your appetite therefore you eat more you gain weight and he was like exactly and so he was like the only way people gain weight is because they eat too much and they don't move enough and I was like well what about lipedema and he was like, do you mean lipidema? I was like, no, I mean lipidema. And I explained about it. My mum already had surgery for it. And he was like, who the F told you that load of bollocks? Oh my God. And I remember just being, I was astounded. And so it's, you know, it's attitudes like that. That, mm. you know, it's no wonder people feel invalidated, feel you know and and so kind of I've educated you know I see consultants for asthma I've taught him about it I've seen mm. and you know every time it comes taught up with me yeah with any, <laughs> like, I was, I'm like anyone says oh have you heard of it so I know I was like right <laughs> let's talk about it um, yeah. I think I actually had heard of it beforehand I don't recognize the name um yeah no that's that's really important to raise awareness about it so yeah thank you for doing that um I think that attitude that you know people are fat because they're lazy or people are fat because they overeat is I mean there's I've seen quite a lot recently on social media um and it's quite interesting well it's shocking the attitude from healthcare professionals as well actually this this stigma um and you can see how somebody who is fat would develop an eating disorder yeah um and it's it scares me because i i think that some people may not recognize it as an eating disorder because they're not underweight yeah um and i can see how that invalidation happens um and i mean i'm glad that i'm kind of aware of it and I would never you know tell someone oh no you can't possibly have an eating disorder because you're not underweight um but yeah it's, it's just shocking and I think these are topics that at med school we're not really we don't really discuss it's not kind sure. of like oh here's anorexia it's this it's not eating it's being underweight it's it's, it's very set in stone and actually I think we have to take it like a level back and go actually what's going on in the brain and kind of that kind of thing rather than yeah it's very slowly changing like the next edition Mm. of the ICD has removed um amenorrhea and BMI below 17.5 from the diagnostic criteria because they are Mm. recognizing that you don't have to be underweight to have Mm. anorexia like it is the behavior weight loss yeah low weight are a symptom exactly Um, so we're getting there good um I wonder whether we could talk more about the fitness to practice um because firstly that must have been a really 
scary time and upsetting time and I mm. I found it also really interesting sorry this is going off on a tangent we will go yeah, back to fitness fine. to practice <laughs> I found it really interesting how you were talking almost from before you started medicine how medicine was your life and kind of your purpose I suppose um and your means of yeah happiness and just life I suppose and mm. I think this is kind of ingrained or it used to be ingrained in kind of the culture of being a medical student and being a doctor yeah. it's kind of like sell your soul to medicine yeah and which is quite to- interesting because that's kind of I can speak about it in a bit about kind of where I am now but mm. that's kind of sort of where we can come to um, in a minute definitely um and I mean I was just going to say that I speak to my friends um who are all very healthy and I can see that they very much have this attitude that medicine is their life mm. and it was for me it was why I developed well it's, I think it's one of the main reasons why I developed anorexia was because I, my life had no meaning unless I got into medical school mm. which is upsets me so much mm. now looking back on it and until I was really ill last year mm. I don't know some in in third year um I still had that attitude and it was only being really unwell where I was like yeah medicine is important to me and I'm really looking forward to my mm. career but it's just no longer my life I have so many other things that I prioritize and I had a well I had a conversation with myself and then I shared it on Instagram Mm. um which was like if I got really ill again which obviously is probable because we Mm. know that relapses are common um and I got really really unwell even more unwell would I give up medicine um for my health and my happiness Mm. and my answer was yes and obviously it's, it wouldn't be an easy decision and there would be lots of yeah it wouldn't be easy I said yes like very easily mm. um but I now am so much happier doing medicine and doing my mm. degree with that attitude anyway I'm going to stop rambling and I'm going to ask you to talk about fitness to practice and how did you find the suspension and did you find it helpful I didn't see it coming because it was so out of the blue or it felt out of blue to me. It was literally like I'd been punched in the gut. Like, and in that time between the, first of all, there was the investigation. Second of all, there was what was going to happen. Cause I went from being, you know, full-time back table to just being, having one day a week of having stuff done. And it was like, mm. suddenly I had all this time. So, that was really difficult and then clearly with my um occupational health doctor he kind of reassured me that it should be okay because you know he was assessing me really regularly and said that actually it was in my best interest to stay on placement because it was a protective factor and you know Mm. obviously I was struggling with self-injury but at the same time like it was all it was a very controlled manner and it wasn't like I was doing it at the hospital and stuff like that um and certainly not necessarily in a way that obviously it was a risk-taking behavior but not in a way that it would escalate further um and then so I kind of assumed everything would be all right I'd have a few weeks off I would be back on placement in no time and then I got the communication that no they were going to continue this the suspension and go forward with the panel and they gave me a copy of all the evidence that they gathered for the end it was pages and pages and pages my the guy doing the investigation he so instead of asking people for statements he interviewed them and so the report was an interpretation of what they said Mm. and he hadn't asked them to countersign it or anything um so I found that really difficult and saying that's so subjective like mm. how can it be used and it was hard and I kind of went into the panel thinking look I've got all this evidence you know I've been doing all the right things how can they say that I'm not fit to practice you know the occupational health doctor has told me I am like so why is this happening and then I was they upheld the suspension 
and I would be required to reset the following restart the following year and it was after that initially it would think it was sort of again I was like I've got to prove I'm well I've got to prove my I'm well and then it kind of really hit me and then I fell apart mm. um I really did fall apart mm. I mean I was having because I had the time I was having more frequent therapies I was actually seeing a therapist twice weekly psychodynamic psychotherapy with that some people see them like five times a week um but I didn't really have such a rapport with the therapist and actually I'm not sure how I think it helped to an extent but not necessarily how that you know because rapport is so important but yeah it did really affect me negatively I think because of also not necessarily more the way it was done because you know you know I'm sure you've had the same. We have a lot of training on breaking bad news. And the way they broke that bad news to me (laughs) was not the way that we're taught to make bad news. They literally just handed me this letter saying, and I had to read it in front of what, five or six other people who just like sat quiet staring at me. And I was like, is is this for real? Like, is, you know, so it was, it was a shock um and um I think I've blanked a lot of it from my mind it's really interesting and it's I mean it's really horrible to hear especially you know I I don't understand why there was no sort of warning as such or kind of you know this is what's going on Mm. um it seems that you were very much thrown into the deep end Mm. um and yeah how I guess you know that that sort of coping mechanism Mm -hmm. was going to uni because I know that when I was really ill you know I was still going to most of my placements and most of the time it was it was yeah helpful um and yeah I can't imagine what it must have felt like to that all suddenly to be sort of stripped away if you like how and so I was speaking before about kind of that sort of sense of purpose and sort of medicine being your life has, has that changed at all or do you find it you know really really important for your sort of well-being this is a really interesting question so kind of just a little follow-on from so when I went into hospital and was sectioned so it was section section two which I didn't see coming either I thought like they were saying all these things and I was like eh, you're not gonna do anything like nothing's gonna happen when was that 20 so my fifth year um 2019 um and I was like I didn't see it coming and then it happened and it was kind of even as I was being transported to the unit I didn't really it didn't really feel very real but interestingly because of my experiences with the fitness practice previously although I was in a significantly worse state of mind very very much worse like I had stopped going to placement because initially it was because I knew I wasn't right in the right frame of mind and I said look I don't think I'm well enough to be there it's not because I don't Mm. want to be there I don't think it's I'm well enough and they were like you know that's fine you did the right thing and then it was literally in the bout I'd been feeling shocking really really depressed and you know very intrusive thoughts and it was in the space of about a week or 10 days that things just sort of fell off a cliff and I stopped leaving the house I stopped kind of there was a lot of self-neglect I had very firm plans and again it was friends raising concerns to I was under the mental health team at this point and it was like on the Monday I spoke to the psychiatrist on the Tuesday I was seen by the mental health team on the Wednesday they referred me to the home treatment team and then the Thursday I had a mental health act assessment and that day I was admitted so interestingly my experience with the fitness to practice gave me so much like I was so fearful of it happening again that even though everything was considerably worse actually I didn't have any fitness practice concerns so I found that really interesting then after that I decided you know I need I couldn't finish fifth year I would have not managed I wouldn't have been able to catch up so I said okay I'll interrupt again so I started fifth year again in a really bad place and again like sort of fell off a cliff again and at that point they were like we think you need to interrupt again so that would be a third interruption and I was like I at that point I was like I don't even care I don't know if I want to be a doctor I just want this sort of degree um because you know at that point that was my seventh year and so and then COVID 
so I had to shield because of my asthma and so that had quite a significant impact and so I then decided to defer starting F1 I'd been on the reserve list and so only found out my job application mid to end of June so it was about six weeks between then and having to start work so I deferred which looking back was the right decision and then this year has been another slight train wreck pre-Christmas I was in a shocking place again and I think I kind of feel really bad because I think I commented on one of your posts because um I think I I felt awful I felt so bad looking back I feel really bad about it because I remember I was such a dark place and everyone was talking about you just have to do this this and this and Mm, everything will be great mm. and I just remember thinking like but I've done all those things that I'm still really depressed so why hasn't it worked for me Mm. and I think I'm not trying to put it on you I can see how no 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 and I I, I I forgot I completely forgot about that but now you've said it mm. and I think this is I mean this is kind of a going off on a tangent again but I do that a lot <laughs> this, is, this is the thing with social media and I think yeah so when I was struggling I kind of I wanted someone so kind of I was hearing from all these medical students that you don't get better it's not possible to get better yeah and I think recently in the last year I've learned that one relapses are common but I've learned how to not sort of fear Mm. them if you like um two some mental health conditions rather than illnesses um people will live with um but that doesn't mean to say they can't have normal lives but so it's difficult I think it is very difficult social media getting the balance Mm. between yeah that whole thing of positivity and toxic positivity and I can see how you know if you're really struggling actually someone being like you know I did this and now I'm absolutely wonderful Mm. living my best life how yeah horrible that can be Mm. um so and I think it's not just social media it's all the campaigns if you look at all mm. the mental health campaigns it's usually it's usually relatively mild to moderate depression yeah and it's someone saying yeah I went to my GP they were really nice they gave me some yeah. antidepressants I did a bit of online CBT and now I'm using using my living my best life and I'm literally I was just literally like and it's every mm. single time I think that was the issue I had is that mm less time as a whole is given to more severe you know personality yeah. disorder schizophrenia bipolar recurrent depression um and I think it was almost that and you know now I feel like you know I do feel I think because I was just in such such a bad place no but I completely I completely agree with you there's there's no disagreement <laughs> yeah. um so, and and those I completely agree like those conditions just it's sort of uh, obviously I'm quite present on Instagram and mm. if anything I'm part of the issue in some respect mm. um but yeah we need there needs to be more mm. space for mm. which is what I'm trying to do a little bit with this podcast mm. for things other than other than yeah. mild to moderate depression and yeah. and yeah and I think that's why so my my Instagram account was originally the corona loner so that was because I was completely on my own shielding and I was like yeah. who am I gonna talk to yeah um you know because a lot of other shielders were older you know yeah so, and then it was sort of you know my shielding came to an end and I was like I'd got you know a small following but people who I'd interact with I was like well what happens next and so it was after having you know seen a lot of mental health awareness week I just kind of all that month or whatever world mental health day there are so many um and it was like I wanted to share my experiences of the Mm. ugly side the bit that doesn't get given the airtime the bit that is you know that people that doesn't get given the airtime you know and that was why it came not another awareness account because it was like I want to show the world or want to share my experience of the really crappy parts mm. that don't get shown um particularly around like things that are just so taboo like self-neglect mm. stuff like that and uh, you know also like that I think especially on the mental health side of Instagram being in hospital is quite glamorized Mm. and it's awful I have quite a lot of trauma from it actually um from my experiences there so 
you know this and then more recently I've had new and different experiences which have been really difficult to come to terms with and actually like I am in a better place um and I think but also considering you know most of my friends doctors and a lot of those who were really stable and really had no difficulties throughout med school or no overt difficulties Mm -hmm. they struggled so much Mm. and this is only the last few weeks I've been thinking actually a medical degree doesn't actually really train you for being a doctor and what and sort of becoming a doctor Mm. and working as a doctor are two very different things and I think when you are doing work experience you don't tend to see the nitty-gritty of the day-to-day job you see sort of the end result of being so like in my mind I know exactly what I'd want to do where I'd want to go where I'd want to end up but realistically that's 15 to 20 years away Mm. do I want to spend you know the best part of two decades of my life doing something I really you know that's because even things like working less than full time Mm. that's still about 46 hours a week which I've just been working full time that's 37 and a half hours a week Mm. you know is is that a going to be good for me and is that b going to be something I want in my life like the bits of medicine I loved was the practical bits the clinical bits the bits where you know you can you can do things and Mm. like I've always hated ward rounds and clinics so as specialties that considerably narrows the field (laughs) um and I if I'm not interested in something I can't apply myself to it I get very bored so for example chemistry a level hated it wasn't interested had to do it don't have to do it anymore which annoys me a bit I really struggled to apply myself to it whereas psychology I loved I found so interesting I worked at it and got a really good result in it as a consequence or as a result so that is pretty much the whole of f1 and f2 like of my six allocated f um, foundation jobs only one is in an area I find interesting Mm. and there's so much uncertainty I know I need routine and regularity that is not what's going to happen with a medical career Mm. um and things as well like working less than full time you take a significant pay cut yeah as well which and I think you know everyone always say oh doctors earn so much money until you're a consultant you don't (laughs) (laughs) and like those do I want to sacrifice the things I enjoy in my life for a job actually I'm not sure I want to do Mm. and I think again it's another very taboo subject that if you've been to medical school and got a medical degree Mm. and then choose not to become a doctor you've failed yeah you're not fulfilling your duty especially at the moment because it's like oh retention is bad and like you know lots of doctors are going abroad and like why is it bad why why is it bad and why are people leaving why are they going yeah like surely that's a sign and like so it's really led me to think you know a so I am deferring another year I haven't decided yet whether or not I'm fully not going to go ahead and becoming a doctor because part of me is like oh well I really want that's all all I've wanted to be but Mm. was my idea of what it was to be a doctor Mm. completely different to actually what it is and Mm. what it will be like I yeah I have friends who were completely solid stable everything through medical school and they have Mm. had you know some of them have had to take extra time some of them have had to you know these people who you would never think would struggle Mm. really really hard time yeah and if you think about everything I've had some people would say oh well that puts you in a really like it puts you in a really good position for dealing with stress and I was like I don't want to deal with stress yeah so I'm like what? I've had stress I don't exactly. want it anymore. I don't want anymore especially now I've come to like and I was seeing some like a a support worker for a little while recently and she said look Harriet what do you want in life 
Mm. And I was just like, I want happiness and I want stability. And I don't think a medical career is going to give me that. Mm. So, you know, and I spoke to um, the, you know, I spoke to the foundation school and actually spoke for the Dean of Health and Wellbeing and lesson full-time training at the place I was meant to be starting. Mm. And she was like, I kind of explained what's happened like in medical school, what's happening this year, what's happened the last year. And she was like, you're not coming. She's like, it's not that we don't want you to come, but like, please don't. <laughs> it's like, you can come at another time, but please don't come right now. And it was like, yeah, I think, I think that's probably right. Because recently in the job I've just finished, that was with the COVID infection survey, desk job, very boring. Great team, amazing team really boring jobs you know in the job I was like they'd be like Harriet you've done this completely wrong why you know how to do it I was like oh sorry and it's fine because it can be rectified it can you know I'd get a slap on the wrist saying please don't do that again but that's the only consequence there is as a doctor like I there was one day in this job that I forgot completely forgot to do this report got to 11 o'clock so that was what several hours after I finished realized oh my god I haven't done that report it needed emailing as soon as I finished luckily there was nothing on it on that day so it, was, it wasn't a disaster but you know if I they said someone said to me okay Harriet patient Mr Smith needs some antibiotics you know we're concerned like we're querying sepsis he needs them and I forget to do it I don't realize until like six hours later you know or you know any sort of that the consequences of that would be dire and I'm like I don't want to go to a you know, for something like that to happen, potentially to have another fitness to practice, because my current one, or the one I had through medical school, will follow me throughout my career. What last year when I was doing my GMC provisional membership application, they said we need all the evidence. It was over 80 pages of evidence. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Like. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Most people tick the boxes. Fine. Bob's your uncle. Done, yeah. And this was over weeks and weeks and weeks. So, and to have it like relived again. Like, it, was, it was horrible. So like that is, you know, I kind of was thinking, I don't, I've done enough surviving mm. and I want to be thriving. And I'm not sure what I'm going to get that from a medical career. Honestly, I, I find it really inspiring um, you saying this. And I think it's a conversation that needs to happen more Mm. um especially surrounding you know I remember my mum actually I don't know why she's this is the one I mean she's not medical at all god no yeah um but she was the one that has always been like at the end of the day medicine is a degree um Mm. and she uses what's the example I think it's Harry Hill I Mm. think he has he has a medical medical degree degree. she's always like you can like you know because when I was growing up musical theatre well, who oh, am I same, like it still is yeah. fucking love I've just Sorry, become obsessed with Six the Musical it's amazing oh yeah I haven't seen it but I've heard the I've heard yeah. the soundtrack I'm going next um, <laughs> oh amazing but yeah. um yeah so I think I think you know it is obviously important that we have doctors working for the NHS but it's important that we think about but why maybe are they leaving what can we do mm. as a both during medical school like you say to well two sides of it to support those who are suffering mm. and I needed like specific support as a medical student so what I found really hard was seeing patients dying and um seeing mm. patients with mental illnesses mm. similar to mine and I you know just university general counseling wasn't very helpful I needed mm-hmm. like anyway so yeah so I think there needs to be more support and then on the other side there needs to be more education about like you were saying actually life becoming a doctor Mm. rather than this disease blah 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 um and what we all can do to you know obviously some mental illnesses are not preventable I'm not trying to sit here and say doing some coloring in and reading a book every day a meditation will you know sorry yeah carry on you tried coloring in and I was literally like you do not I'm overwhelmed you do not understand how stressful coloring is what if I choose like which picture do I choose what if I color over the lines what if what if I choose the wrong color what if that color is right but it runs out like these are all very important questions and I'm literally like this was a mental health nurse as well 
Oh gosh. But yeah, I think, you know, there does need to be more, even if it's raising awareness, I don't know, not raising awareness, just actual education or just Mm. honest chats about the life of a doctor. Mm. And there needs to be more discussion about you don't have to be a doctor yeah you don't have to it doesn't make Mm. you a failure because Mm. I like I was saying you know I am not set on becoming a doctor either I'm Mm. I'm still sort of 90% at the moment but I've still got two more years of med school and Mm. I haven't been a doctor yet Mm. um but you know there is 10% in me that's like well you know I I always want to work and have a, a good want to have a good income is a priority for me I'm sorry but this whole like money doesn't buy happiness it doesn't buy all of happiness but it helps it helps it really does it It helps to buy food um it helps to do all of these things that we enjoy anyway ran over so (laughs) I want to have a decent income I want but you know that's not the priority the priority is doing something that doesn't cause me stress or so much stress um Mm. yeah and makes me happy so yeah I just thank you for being honest about that Mm. it's just like it's really I actually don't think I've heard anyone talk about Mm. it before so thank you I posted about it because like again it's something I try and post about my experiences that maybe aren't that other people maybe like not Mm. confident to speak about and I was I got such an amazing response like I got responses from a couple of people saying I study medicine I've never practiced as a doctor because it won't be right Mm. for me I um and so much support for it saying actually thank you for talking about this because no one does Mm. and yeah I was really amazed and overwhelmed and it it made me really more much more confident about my decision Um, and it absolutely does not make you a failure Mm. it's the complete opposite I think it's just surrounding this whole like being self not being being selfish it's not even being selfish Mm. it's but you know putting yourself first yeah self-protection yeah I think in the healthcare profession that's like be that's like the wrong thing to do that's Mm. like being selfish like you should put your patients before you yeah and it's like are you living to work or working to live Mm. and it's like the med medicine it becomes your life yeah you you especially as a junior doctor you can't really have a life Mm. or you will really struggle to there's there's a reason that a, a huge number of of you know qualified doctors or other clinicians work part-time you know because it's just not sustainable and I remember Ali Abdal (laughs) I'm a sucker for his YouTube vlogs um he says that throughout university we always spoke to doctors and said if you had the choice you know you know if money wasn't the thing which obviously it is would you work part-time I think everybody said yes yeah so many people who I've spoken to said they wished they'd done less than full-time training Mm. a friend of mine at the weekend said um have you considered um less than um full-time f1 and f2 and I haven't really properly but it's it's definitely there but then it's like but as an F1 after six years of med school, um, I wouldn't be earning that much money, mm. you know, uh, you know, put against how much hard work I've put in and less mm. than full time, especially now that I've lived in London and really enjoy living in London mm. and feel my life is in London. I'm like, oh, gosh. But yeah, let's start wrapping it up a little bit. Honestly, it's been really, really great and refreshing. And and yes, some, you know, more you know like you said the ugly side of mental health but that's really important and actually can provide a lot of people with you know comfort and a lot of people will be able to relate and I think a common theme of these podcast episodes for me is that although everyone's experience of mental illness or a mental health condition is different um, there are so many things that we can all like empathize mm. and relate with and you know our, our both of our experiences are completely different I'm not Mm. trying to say they're similar but there's so many things that I'm like oh yeah I get that or I get it which is it's quite nice in a way it's it's validating mm. because it can be so isolating especially when you're like you're 
told to hush it up like you, you know mm. stiff up a lip you just got to cope you especially in medicine mm. that's like the culture and then I think in in a sense you know Instagram especially mental health Instagram can be incredibly helpful incredibly supportive I've made some amazing friends mm. but it can be horrendously toxic and competitive mm. um and it I think one of the things I have issue with is obviously they talk about severity of mental illness and obviously mine has been in inverted commas more towards the severe end Mm. however I know I say you know attention gets given a lot more to maybe the more milder I'm not saying that it is mild or my experience is worse I'm saying that because it's crap for whoever experiences it affects your life and it's more so it's not mild at all it's still has a major impact of life and I think just because someone else has more severe like it doesn't invalidate your experience one thing I always have to remind myself is you know saying you can't be happy because some you can't be sad because someone has it worse is just like saying you can't be happy because someone has it better I like that yeah that's really nice um yeah really nice I really really appreciate that that's gonna be the quote of the day (laughs) for me (laughs) gonna remind myself that yeah write it on the wall (laughs) literally but honestly thank you so so much um I've really I've really enjoyed listening to the way you speak about things and although there's some really sad parts to Mm. what you've been through um it's yeah really validating for me and I'm sure other people um listening to it and you've raised awareness about so many different things um in the space of how how long we've been talking which is amazing um and yeah just thank you so much well thank you for having me um as you know if it just helps one person it it makes it all worth it and like I'm really fortunate that I've had a lot of you know a fair amount of people say actually thank you for speaking about these things because not not many people have so yeah that's kind of that makes it it makes it worth it so I completely agree and this will definitely help at least one person so I really hope you enjoyed listening to episode seven of stories versus stigma I am so grateful for Harriet spending some time talking to me and talking to us, educating us about lots of different mental health conditions as well as lipedema. If you would like to hear from Harriet some more, please do head over to her Instagram where she can be found at notanotherawarenessaccount. I'll also leave a link to her Instagram in the show notes as well as places to find support on the topics mentioned. Please also make sure to check out the previous six episodes of Stories vs. Stigma. Remember to rate us, leave a review and tune in next time for another episode of Stories vs. Stigma. Have a lovely week and I will catch up with you all soon. Bye everybody!